and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio gram thingamajiggy where we talk for about half an hour or so about all things sciencey. My name is Stu and on the show with me this week I am joined by Chris. Hello Stu, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. And what have you brought in for us this week of a sciencey nature? Well I brought in a special guest. Uh, well, I'll be speaking to a special guest, Jennifer Irvin, who is a PhD candidate for the Centre for Health Equity in the Melbourne School of Population Global Health at the University of Melbourne. She has recently published a review article in the journal Lancet Public Health looking at the mental health impact of the unpaid work that is mostly done by women. You know, as we know, as I'm sure most people know, there is a huge kind of gender imbalance in housework and childcare and those sort of things. The unpaid work that takes place outside the formal work setting, uh, mostly done by women. Um, and I think most of us would agree that that's a bad thing from a kind of a social justice and equality kind of perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's one of those things, I think, too, that people suspect there's bad outcomes from it, but has anyone done any research? And apparently they have. Well, that's the thing. So this is actually a review article, which is combining, uh, look, looking for research that's been done on the topic and looking at what is the health impacts and particularly focusing on mental health impacts and um, finding that, as you'd imagine, it does affect women more than it does men, the unpaid work. So yeah, we're just going to dig into that and find out what the um, yeah what the impact of that is and what we know about it. It's been interesting having this take place in the context of the recent job summit that the government has held. So it kind of um, fits into that kind of notion of what is what are we doing to make sure there is more equality in in work, in formal work, and outside formal work. So it's, yeah, it's a very tiny discussion and. It's good to get some science into it and some, yeah, some medical science of the actual health impacts rather than just speculating on what we think is a good idea. Yeah, it sounds great to, uh, to get some, yeah, as you say, some science behind it and sort of take a step away from the political mm. discussions that often surround this kind of topic. Now, I'm talking about uh, the Eureka Prizes, which were announced uh, at the end of August. So the 31st of August, there was a big announcement of who won the Eureka Prizes, and I do think that is a time of the year when people kind of do celebrate work, which otherwise may not be uh, in the public eye, mm-hmm. I, I guess. Yeah, so the Eureka Prizes uh, have been awarded again this year, um, as they are every year. There's 15 separate prizes awarded this year um, from a whole bunch of different things Great. and two medals as well. Fantastic. So these are, these are the Archies, as we like to call them, um, after Archimedes. With his Eureka. I mean, you know, it, it can get confusing because there is also the Archibald Prize. Oh, true. Maybe we is, shouldn't call it which the Archies. Which is AKA, AKA the Archies. So <laughs> maybe we shouldn't call um, it that. Maybe we should call them the, the Reeky. I don't know. The Reekies. I don't know. We've got, to, we've got to come up with a better name. The Bathies. Mm-hmm. Archimedes was in the bath, right? Yeah, could be. Could be. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but look, yeah, Eureka Prize's annual event. Um, I'm just going to... Going to quickly have a look at some of the winners because there is not enough time to go through all 15 winners. So I'm going to talk about some of the interesting research that was recognised this year. Um, So please stay tuned for that coming up later in the show.
Well, it's that time of year again when Australian scientists uh, get recognised, well, not recognised on the street, but they do get some recognition for their contributions to science. And the end of August brings the announcement of this year's winners of the Eureka Prizes. Now, the Eureka Prizes have been awarded by the Australian Museum since 1990. And there are a range of categories reflecting different scientific fields and they're each chosen by different panels for each award. So there's kind of, uh, I guess, collaboration or cooperation between the Australian Museum and various other science institutions to figure out who is deserving of an award. And as I said in the intro, this year there were 15 separate prizes awarded and we won't have time to to look at each one of them separately uh, but we can you know i was thinking maybe we could try and catch up with some of the winners sure um on the show and try and get in touch Good with idea, them and yeah. they can tell us tell us about their award-winning work um you know face to face to face ear to ear zoom to zoom i don't know how it works um however we can get them on the show um now, one of the most notable awards is the Prize for Interdisciplinary Scientific Research, which was awarded to a group of researchers based at the University of Sydney who were looking into food miles. And we're probably all familiar with the concept of food miles. It's how um, how far individual items of food or products actually travel from where they're produced to where they get eaten. Um, I guess this was an American concept at some point because the idea of food miles and not food kilometers, which is literally what every other science in the world would would use as a measurement. But look, it is uh, it is tracking how far food travels from, from where it's produced to where it gets eaten. Um, and this uh, research has tracked the journey of thousands of individual food items from production to consumption logging millions of kilometres of travel for various foodstuffs we commonly eat. Um, And the work that they did showed that transport of food contributes a much larger carbon footprint than what was previously estimated. So it's more than seven times higher in emissions than previous estimates of of what carbon emissions were related to food miles, which wow. is a huge yeah, jump. Yeah, it was big, yeah. Yeah. Um, they also showed that only 12.5% of the world's population, so the richest one-eighth of the population of the world, contribute 46% of the total food mile emissions. Uh, and also they showed that the poorest half of the world's population only contribute one-fifth of the emissions in food mile terms. So there's a huge disparity between, you know, how rich people are and how much of a problem they're, they're personally, you know, causing by, by buying food from, basically by not eating locally. And that was that was one of the... Um, sort of suggestions that these authors or these researchers said was, you know, eat, eat more locally and you will reduce your reduce your impact. Which, you know, it's it's a pretty simple uh, conclusion, I guess. Um, now, one of the things uh, that the Eureka Prizes recognise is that science is only as good as the data on which it is based, and 
the Department of Industry, Science and Resources Eureka Prize for Innovation in Citizen Science is focused on how the public can be very helpful in gathering useful data for science to, uh, you know, to work with, to mm-hmm. have, to have the, the, the data and, and do the analysis. They need to get good information. So this year, uh, the prize itself went to the Environment Recovery Project, which is a joint effort between the University of New South Wales and the German Centre for Integrative Biodiversity Research. So they enlisted the help of 1,600 volunteers who went out and surveyed bushfire damage from the Black Summer bushfires in 2019-2020. So it's a couple of years ago now, but they're still actually gathering data on this. So they're actually collecting data now on how the natural systems are recovering. So they're still in the process of recovering and it may actually take uh, decades for the for those ecosystems to recover fully from the from the fires, which were you know pretty devastating all around. So, what was the citizen science aspect there? So that's the the sixteen hundred volunteers. So oh, this right. is okay. just you know they're they're non they're well they're, some of them probably are scientists, but they're not uh, you know they're not employed. They've actually just signed up to to collect data, and you can actually still join up. Uh, to help this ongoing project. So there's a website called iNaturalist, um, which I think we may have talked about on the show before. Um, there's a whole lot of citizen science projects run through this website. So go to the iNaturalist website, search for the Environment Recovery Project, and you can um, join up and start gathering data, which will then be used for further analysis and tracking the recovery of um, natural ecosystems uh recovering from those fires which is as i said still still happening it's still uh still having a big impact um now there were a couple of other prizes awarded for environmental research including the new south wales environment and heritage eureka prize for applied environmental research um that went to the australian national university for their work on sustainable farms so one of the actual projects the ANU was involved in or actually developed was um, they produced a tool um, to help farmers. So it's basically an app that farmers can use to identify threatened bird species on their properties. Oh, um, and that, yeah, well, by, by identifying threatened bird species, they can then develop management strategies to protect those bird species and preserve their pest control activities around crops because you know, uh, natural bird populations actually have a um, beneficial uh, effect on on crop pest control because they they feed on insect pests and things that are uh, you know that attack our crops. So the more the more birds you've got around your farm, potentially the more um, pest control you get for free from I, looking after the birds. I kind of want to make an angry birds joke, but I feel like I'm a few years too late with that. <laughs> Do people even still play Angry Birds? I don't even know. No idea. Probably not. Um, So, yeah, there were were a whole bunch of prizes. As I said, there's 15 prizes in all. Um, There was prizes, obviously, for work in the global COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Professor Raina McIntyre was recognised for her leadership during the crisis. Um, There was also, as I said, uh, there was two medals presented during the ceremony on the 31st of August. One to a long-time 
uh, curator at the Australian Museum, Stephen Keeble, who looked after the invertebrate collection at the Australian Museum. And the other medal went to the former director of Questacon, who is Graham Durant, who worked there for 20 years at Questacon, which if you haven't been to Questacon in Canberra, it's well worth a visit if you ever happen to be in the nation's capital. Um, but as I said, there, there are about another 10 prizes I really just have not got time to get to. There's a whole lot of prizes, um, you know, a bunch of uh, prizes to students of science, so school students, high school students and things like that, and all sorts of other, um, you know, science innovators getting recognised for their work. Um, I will try to get in touch with some of the winners and hopefully get them on the show so they can tell us about their research and their projects firsthand in future programs. But really, you know, the Eureka Prize is one of the big, uh, the big days for Australian science. And uh, I think it's worth celebrating science in Australia. We really do produce a lot of world-class science that tells us uh, a lot about the world that we all share. So um, if you have a chance, get uh, get online and look up the rest of the winners and, and read about you know the, the great projects that people have been doing that have been recognized by the Eureka Prizes. Amazing. In the history of science, Novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. Across Australia, on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, it's well known that women do the bulk of unpaid work, such as housework and childcare. But aside from the unfairness involved, what impact does this have on health? A new publication of the journal Lancet Public Health examines the connection between unpaid work and mental health. And on the line to talk about it is the lead author, Jennifer Irvin, who is a PhD candidate at the Centre for Health Equity in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Jennifer, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to be here. Now, could you tell us a bit about this work and what you found? Yeah, of course. Well, as you just alluded to, billions of hours are spent in unpaid labour across the globe every day, and that is a burden that's disproportionately shouldered by women. And we know this has an impact on women's labour force participation and economic security, but the health impacts of unpaid labour have to date largely been unexplored. So we conducted a systematic review, which means that we gathered all the existing research on unpaid labour and mental health across the globe, according to really tight criteria to see what, if any impact, higher unpaid labour time had on working men and women. Um, I suppose with respect to systematic reviews, they're very um, rigorous and it's important to set really tightly defined criteria as this enables us to really isolate the effect of unpaid labour on mental health. The other important, I think, thing about our review was that our review focused on employed adults, given that we were really interested in this double burden effect of combining paid work with unpaid work and how this subsequently creates issues of role overload and, and time poverty and, and other mechanisms through which mental health is displayed. The way we do this is we, we search um, multiple databases. So we search six databases and identified a total of, you know, over 6,000 records, which then you go on to screen and you screen them, you know, title and abstract, and then you refine it and then you screen full text. So it's quite a, a rigorous process. And then we ended up 
ultimately with nine studies that met all our inclusion criteria. Um, and that included some 70,000 participants um, to be eligible for inclusion in the review process. Yeah, where you start then looking at the literature. That's a big drop off 6,000 down to 19. You're absolutely right. And this is, I suppose, speaks to a little bit of the, the fact that there's a bit of a dearth of research overall around this topic. Um, and the other thing that was interesting is we didn't impose any um, publication date restrictions. So often when you do a systematic review, you might um, say cut it off at say the year 2000, only look at sort of the more recent literature, whereas we knew that there was probably not a, not a great deal out there. And so we didn't have any publication date restrictions. And so that's basically everything that's been published um, from any country, um, you know, since publications began. Um, certainly we see this, this sort of literature starts to sort of um, gain some traction in the late 90s. But yeah, we only got 19 from that whole that whole time period. And so what did you find? Yeah, well, interestingly, I mean, I think, um, and we can talk maybe a bit to this later on, but there's no universally recognised term or definition for unpaid labour. So we find there was a lot of variation in how unpaid labour was conceptualised and measured. So, for example, some studies measured unpaid labour in its totality, which we kind of mean that means all household labour plus all types of care um, and caregiving, whilst others, particularly some of the older papers, looked solely at housework, um, whilst others examined domains of unpaid labour like housework and childcare separately. But um, ultimately, the main findings were that every study reported substantial gender differences in exposure to unpaid labour. So women were uniformly doing more, um, just, you know, regardless of the geographical setting or even the temporal setting, the time, time setting in which the paper came out. Um, and ultimately, overall, our results showed that increasing time or higher um, I suppose, amounts of unpaid labour was associated with poorer mental health in employed women, but the effects were less clear for men. Okay, so there is a different impact on this unpaid work on women as opposed to men? Yeah, it's a really interesting point and it's something that I think we've had a lot of discussions about and definitely more research is required in men. I think there's probably several reasons why the effects were less clear in men um, from our review. One, because there were less studies in men overall. So five of the studies that were in the that were in the review actually didn't include men in their analysis at all. So that's a gap um, in that there's less evidence to start with. And there's also no longitudinal evidence or studies over time for men that were included in our narrative synthesis. So of the two that made it through to the narrative synthesis, two of those were just in looking at women only. And we know that longitudinal evidence or studies where, you know, the exposure happens before the outcome are more robust. So we don't have any of those studies in men to date. So that's a gap. Um, and I think probably whilst there might be an effect for men, so we did find a negative association in three out of the 12 studies that looked at men and they were all for the house for housework. Um, but three out of 12 obviously is still a minority. Um, but I think ultimately what, what we're seeing is that men are much less likely to be carrying out a high unpaid load and sort of like from a dose perspective or a population dose perspective, they're less likely to be in those higher brackets of unpaid labour when they're categorising labour, if that's how they interrogate it in the study. And I think we believe, and we certainly um, would would expect to see that if men were carrying out as much unpaid work as women on top of their paid workloads, we would expect to see an effect. Um, I think another important point that's come up when we've been discussing this study is um, in related to the gender divisions in the type of unpaid labour or household tasks. Um, across the globe, um, and particularly in Western societies, it's quite normative for men to commonly do the less time sensitive jobs within the household. So they they might, you know, be more um, uh, nominated to do sort of outdoor or, or maintenance tasks. And they refer to these sorts of jobs or type of unpaid work in the literature as high schedule control tasks, where 
where you just have more control over when you can actually undertake this type of unpaid work. And so a good example um, that we've used a lot is that you can delay moving, sorry, you can delay mowing the lawn or cleaning out the gutters or, or some of those sort of um, less time sensitive jobs to the weekend. And so you just have less time pressure as to when you have to perform them. Whereas you can't, a lot of the childcare stuff and, and some of the caregiving um, domains, you can't delay those to a, to a more convenient time and neither can you some of the, you know, housework related ones like cooking for, for your family. Um, so it's really, really interesting. Um, but I think it's not that men don't want to have an active role these days. I think there's plenty of men out there that are taking a more active role in childcare and housework and that we know that they want to be playing a more active role in raising their children. But there are limitations and there's some barriers with respect to, to men's um, flexibility in their workplaces um, or what we call a flexibility stigma that doesn't necessarily exist for women. It's much more normative for women to have flexible work. And so um, I think this week in which the job summit's occurring, I think it's just really important that we recognise that when it comes to supporting female labour force participation, we actually um, put some policy in place for men to be able to be supported to take time off to work flexibly or care for children. Um, it's pretty important, I think, for driving this sort of level of gender equality. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you did mention earlier the different types of um, unpaid work we're talking about, um, housework versus childcare, that sort of thing. Was there a different impact found from those different types of work where it was spelled out in the studies in your review? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And um, it's one that the, the study that's been published does go into in a little bit of detail. Um, so what we found, so of for women, for instance, um, 11 of the 14 studies that were included in the narrative synthesis um, uh, all reported a negative association for mental health. But of course, as I said before, one of the challenges was some of the studies looked at total housework, sorry, total labour, some it looked at housework, some looked at childcare. So um, for the total unpaid labour, there was five of those and four out of the five um, showed a negative association for mental health. And I'll get to childcare and housework in a moment, but I suppose with respect to the mechanisms by which we expect total unpaid labour to have an effect, it's kind of becomes down to, well, this is lumping everything together into one big time time allocation, if you like. And that's where we start to talk about things like, um, you know, time scarcity and, and time poverty and rushing with, if you've got a really high amount of unpaid labour, it doesn't matter what components that's made up of. It has, um, you know, obviously um, can have an effect on your mental health and wellbeing just because there's only 24 hours in a day. But then when you start looking at some of the other, the nuance within some of the domains, so there's lots of domains to unpaid labour. So it's not just housework. There's also obviously childcare, there's other care. And a lot of studies will, um, or the way survey measures work across the world is they'll often um, pull out or tease out childcare and other care separately, which is good. So you can examine the nuance between childcare or then caring for, you know, elders or, or a relative with a disability or something like that. Um, and then there's the other domain that we talked about a little bit before for men, which is outdoor tasks or, or maintenance. Um, and they're the, just the general sort of categories that people look at um, in these studies. But within the review, what we found um, is that some of them did unpaid labour in its totality. Quite a few did housework, um, but only four did childcare. And of those four, only one study showed a um, 
a negative associate or any association um, and it was a negative association for women in one of the four studies um, and then across the board for men there, there wasn't any association for childcare and so this led us to believe okay well is childcare you know less of a problem but I really think at the end of the day when you when you crunch the data and really look at the review and 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 you can't really compare because there's not enough studies really that have looked at childcare and certainly none from a longitudinal standpoint um, so that's a difficult one, childcare, and I think really what it tells us is that we just need more evidence around what impact, if any, childcare does have. When you look at the sociological literature, you know, there's a lot of discussion around the fact that childcare isn't um, as, as detrimental as other types of unpaid labour, that there's a protective um, component to, to care. Um, but again, it all comes down to how much time you've got in the day and what other competing interests you have going on at the same time. Um, as well. And then when you look at housework as a completely separate domain, then yeah, we are seeing, say for women, three, uh, sorry, six out of the nine studies that looked at housework in women, um, yeah, we're seeing a negative impact as a result of housework. And the mechanisms behind this, you know, go back into the, you know, dark ages with respect to, you know, it being dirty work or undervalued work or all those sorts of things, as well as it just being mundane and boring and probably by and large very undervalued and underappreciated so yeah it's interesting but not, not none of it's very well you know established a lot of it's theoretical yeah it sounds like a lot of it is informed perhaps on other studies on paid work and that sort of thing and that you then carry across to the unpaid work is that the case yeah, and you do have to draw from the paid work literature quite a bit because there has been quite a lot of work done in, in the paid um, space, paid workspace, obviously, looking at mental health and, and the way that, you know, paid work translates into either positive or, or mental health um, effects. And so, yeah, absolutely. We borrow a lot um, from particularly there's been a bit about role strain and role conflict and role overload and that, that a lot of that stuff comes from the paid um workforce literature and it is starting to bleed into obviously the unpaid literature now as well um, but it's a really really good point and it's it definitely further research is required I think if anything what our review showed is that yes we can we can show here that by and large there is going to be a mentally health impact for increasing unpaid labour when you're, when you're working, um, but ultimately it'd be good to get some more robust longitudinal evidence. As I said, only two out of the um, of the 14 studies that were in the um, narrative synthesis were longitudinal. Yeah, that's one of the things I was interested in because you alluded earlier to the fact that these longitudinal studies can give you an indication of cause and effect. And I noticed in your paper it talks about the association between unpaid work and mental health impacts, but you know, how certain can we be that there is that causative uh, arrangement there. So yeah, he's so onto it. And yeah, you could be an epidemiologist because that's exactly what yeah, we need to pick out of these out of these papers and make sure they don't get a life of their own is that when you've got a cross-sectional study, what can happen is what's known as reverse causation. So people that have got better mental health can be doing a higher amount of unpaid labour, for instance. Um, because they're otherwise doing better um, and uh, can take on a, a higher load. And so you don't necessarily know what came first, chicken or egg, it's that kind of thing. Um, whereas when you look at longitudinal work, when it's conducted in a, in a robust way or designed in a robust way, longitudinal work, one of the benefits of that is that you, you have a temporal um, understanding that your exposure, which in this case would be high amounts of unpaid labour, comes before 
measuring the outcome, if that makes sense. So, yeah, much more and more robust. So absolutely, to your point, we can't make really any really strong causal argument um, from this paper. And that's not uncommon, you know, when, when there's a bit of a dearth of research. But what it points to is that, um, you know, further research is required, longitudinal, robust, you know, epidemiological work to look at this association between what is a, a social determinant, like, you know, something like unpaid labour on health, but look at it in a, in a longitudinal fashion, which is what we're working on at the moment. One thing that comes to mind then is you said the research included in your review spans a long time period. So I guess uh, the question I have then, is there any work, say, over the last couple of years that might capture the effect of the pandemic, whether there's been, you know, any change in the, in the balance of work or in the, the impact of unpaid work? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I think, firstly, just to answer your question about it being historical, certainly one of the things that came up in peer review is it, is it still relevant if we've got some of these studies from the late 90s and, the, you know, the work forced participation of women changes, you know, has changed so much even in the last 20 years and, you know, can you draw conclusions? Um, and I think, you know, I think that's an important point, but I think one of the important reasons why we restricted to employed adults was that we were still seeing the same, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're employed back then or you're employed now, the same types of pressures are being applied. So that was a really interesting thing to think about because certainly the social cultural norms around um, unpaid labour, both within country and between countries have changed substantially. Um, so the social, you know, the current social context is obviously always relevant. Um, which sort of leads into your point about COVID, which is absolutely, you know, has really changed the landscape with respect to unpaid labour. Um, our our review, um, we cut off um, with respect to search criteria and monitoring search um, at the end of last year, early this year, which meant that there's been a lot of COVID-related unpaid labour and, and the, the mental health impacts of the pandemic and lockdowns and home learning, all that sort of stuff has, has been coming out. So we... Um, there's no COVID studies um, specifically in, in our review, um, but I think it will be a really interesting, um, I suppose, thing to do going forward because there's some really interesting research coming out from that. But I suppose what happens with that sort of research over the COVID period from a mental health perspective is that there's a there's a mental health, obviously, impact from just living through a pandemic. So it's, it is harder to disentangle um you know, how much that's related to you, you, your worries about your family and friends and, you know, a global pandemic sweeping across the world um, as opposed to, yeah, how stressful it is to have three children at home or whatever it is, you know, trying to home learn and work at the same time. So, yeah, it's really, really interesting. But I think COVID definitely has highlighted and amplified um, the gender gap in the division of unpaid labour with women in Australia and across the globe. We've seen it in lots of articles. They've shouldered more of that increase in unpaid work on top of a already existing heavier load. I think in Australia, um, women were thought to take on at least an additional hour per day more than men during the pandemic. Um, and women, particularly mothers of young or school-aged children, were more likely than men to reduce their paid work hours or drop out of the labour market or take hits to their productivity. So that was a you know, unfortunately, in many ways, COVID had stalled or in some instances reversed some of those hard-won gains in gender equality. However, I think what's really important is that all is not lost because I think given the pandemic as you know, I'm sure for your working life as well, you know, the pandemic is temporarily or it feels like at the moment permanently um, reshaped our workplace structures and systems and as well as our domestic and home lives. So in many ways, I think it the pandemic has the power to recalibrate so much how work and care operationalised in the long term, which hopefully, yeah, leads to some substantive changes. Um, well, that's my hope anyway. 
Well, that's certainly interesting to hear you talk about it because we hear about and read about a lot of speculation on the impact of the pandemic and the way it may have changed the nature of work or the balance of work in the home. And it's good to hear that there is actually some people looking at the science of it and what the actual facts are and data, which kind of brings me to my next question, which is about what what don't we know still? What do we still need to find out? Um, what are the big questions remaining? And is there anybody doing any work on it? Yeah, so um, looking forward, I think, you know, one of the, the really nice things about doing a systematic review um, is really getting a feel for, for what's out there. And particularly from, from my perspective as a, you know, as a researcher is to find out what the gaps are and where we can um, do some future work. So looking forward, we, we definitely identified, and we've talked about this a bit, the need for further high quality longitudinal research. And I think there's also a need to understand or better understand the nuance within the different domains of unpaid labour that we've talked about, because we really can't comment on childcare. Yes, housework looks detrimental. Yes, total unpaid labour looks detrimental, but no one's really looked at some of these unpaid labour domains that men are more likely to do, like the outdoor tasks and maintenance. So I think we need to, yeah, further investigate the nuance. And we also need more evidence in men, absolutely. Um, and so we're really interested at the moment in um, applying or addressing these gaps, but really honing in on the Australian context because there's not a lot coming out of Australia either. Um, so there's some, some really powerful um, groups in some of the universities certainly looking at unpaid labour and, and gender issues, but with respect to specifically mental health, this is a bit of a gap. Um, so we're currently working, I'm working on a paper at the moment actually, um, to address these gaps. And we're using um, HILDA. I'm not sure if you've, you're familiar with HILDA. Um, so it's Household Income. Uh, labour Dynamics um, Survey in Australia. So it's a naturally, nationally representative household-based study, um, which is really amazing um, survey study and panel data to have access to in Australia. And we're using 19 waves uh, or years of, of that data to examine both the different domains as well as total unpaid labour in working age men and women and doing that using obviously longitudinal design. So hopefully we'll have more to talk about that in more detail towards the end of the year. Um, so, yeah, that'll be good to be able to report to specifically for the Australian context as well. Fantastic. Well, this is uh, hugely important work that affects us all really and has a big impact on how we shape our society. So thank you for so much for joining us today. It's been my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the interest. And that was Jennifer Irvin from the University of Melbourne talking about the mental health impact of women's unpaid work. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost, Lost in Science! science.
for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.